So Greg, Caleb, are we good to go? Very good. All right. Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Sunday School. Good to see you again. It's nice and bright over there. All right. We are continuing with our Answers Bible Curriculum and our study through the lives of the patriarchs. We are currently following the life of Jacob. By the way, we're continuing to refine our video and sound. It was really good for me last week in terms of hearing you. Hopefully, it's even better for you this week in terms of hearing me. All right, but last week, we saw Jacob steal the blessing from Esau. Though God had promised Jacob and his descendants that they would obtain a, a place of blessing and authority over Esau and his descendants, Jacob and Rebekah decided that they would use sin in order to bring about God's promise. Their plan worked. They deceived Isaac. They obtained the Abrahamic blessing for Jacob. But in the process, they enraged Esau, and he's ready now to kill his brother Jacob. Jacob has to flee in order to save his life. So we observed the principle last week that we must not use sin as a way to obtain God's promise. Not bad for us to be active, but whatever we do, we don't use sin. We wait on the Lord. Yet even what Jacob did, even what Rebekah did, was part of God's sovereign plan. God would actually use Jacob's flight to Haran to finally provide a family for Jacob. And what a family. That's the subject of today's class, Jacob's Family Grows. Now we're going to see in what unfolds today, in the different passages we look at, what God was continuing to teach Jacob, and really to teach us, about trusting God to provide and keep his promises. Now let's pray, and then we'll continue. Our great God, you are the provider, you are the creator, you are the sustainer. We need you not only to sustain our physical life, but also our spiritual life. And Lord God, we know that you have designed so often that we will need to wait on you. And there will be many temptations in those situations to turn to sin as a way to make things easier, or to bring about what we need. Or desire. I pray, God, that we would learn from the life of Jacob just as you meant us to. I pray, God, most of all, that we would learn to trust you as a good, sovereign, perfectly wise God. You are our God. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, please take your Bibles and open to Genesis chapter 28. Genesis 28. And what do you know? If you're using the Pew Bible, it's on page 28. So go ahead and turn there. We're going to be looking at several passages today. Some of them we'll spend more time with and some a little bit less time with. We're going to pick up immediately where we left off last time. Jacob has just stolen the blessing, and now he realizes he has to flee. But before he goes, Isaac has a little chat with him. And we're going to start there, Genesis 28, verses 1 to 5. Genesis 28, 1 to 5, and it reads thus. So Isaac called Jacob and blessed him, and charged him, and said to him, You shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and from there take to yourself a wife from the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. May God Almighty bless you, and make you fruitful, and multiply you, so that you may become a company of peoples. May he also give you the blessing of Abraham to you and to your descendants with you, that you may possess the land of your sojournings, which God gave to Abraham. And Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Padan Aram, to Laban, son of Bethuel the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, the mother of Jacob and Esau. All right, we're just starting with these first five verses. I want to observe a few things. We see here Jacob being sent off to Rebekah's brother, Laban, in Padan Aram, or what's later be called Haran. Now, what's Jacob's mission? Go ahead and tell me. To obtain a wife. And notice that it says a wife. That's the understanding. Notice also in this commissioning, in this, Isaac affirms Abrahamic blessing on Jacob. Not like, oh, I think it's really interesting. He doesn't mention the whole deception thing. Like, hey, what you're doing lately was pretty, pretty messed up. He just says, 
you know, those things I blessed over you before, I'm going to talk about them again. Yeah, God bring those things to pass. Isaac is on board with God's plan at this point. But he does affirm Abraham's blessings to Jacob and to Jacob's descendants. Which part of the blessing is particularly prominent? Notice there's a lot of talk here about descendants, multiplied descendants. See this in verses 3 and 4. God make you fruitful and multiply you. And you become a company of peoples. May you and your descendants possess the land. Now, it's kind of interesting that that's spoken about again, because up to this point, let's face it, the descendants of Abraham have not multiplied very much. I mean, Abraham did have a son, but it was only one, through Sarah at least. It was Isaac. And then Isaac, well, did a little better. He had two sons through Rebecca, but one of those sons wasn't chosen. So kind of just status quo. One, one kid. So when are we going to start actually seeing Abraham's seed multiply, become a people? And has God really chosen Jacob the planter? I mean, Isaac's prayed about it prayed over Jacob, prophesied over Jacob, but will God accept Jacob? Well, let's read on. Genesis 28, verse 10. We're going to pick up a little more text here. Genesis 28, 10 to 22. Here's what. Then Jacob departed from Beersheba and went toward Haran. He came to a certain place, spent the night there, because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of the place and put it under his head and lay down in that place. He had a dream. Behold, a ladder was set on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord, and that's Yahweh, Yahweh stood above it and said, I am Yahweh, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie. I will give it to you and to your descendants. Your descendants will also be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely Yahweh is in this place, and I did not know it. He was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So Jacob rose early in the morning, and he took the stone that he had put under his head, and he set it up as a pillar and poured oil on its top. He called the name of that place Beth-el. However, previously the name of the city had been Luz. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me on this journey that I take and will give me food to eat and garments to wear and I return to my father's house in safety, then Yahweh will be my God. This stone which I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. All right, we'll stop here and make some more observations. Notice that Jacob is on his way now to Haran. I'm actually going to go back to this slide for a little bit so you can see the map. He's on his way to Haran. This is a 500-mile trip, 500-plus actually, a little bit more than 500 miles, going from southern Canaan to southeast Turkey. And uh, you can see he's arriving in, in Bethel, and hopefully you can see there on the map. Bethel is kind of right in the center of Canaan. We'll say more about that in just a second. You can see where he goes. Long trip. What's your impression about how much stuff Jacob has with him on this journey? Is he loaded up? He doesn't have an. Uh, sorry, go ahead. Somebody says. Uh, no entourage, no servants, no band of camels. He, after all, he's using a stone as a pillow. 
doesn't seem to have any luxuries with him. He makes comments about the Lord providing him food and clothing. He doesn't have much with him. And imagine you were in his situation. Imagine you set off on this 500-mile journey. You're going through unknown territory, and you only have the basics with you. Maybe you have an animal. It's not mentioned here, but he probably has an animal, maybe a camel or something. You've got maybe a week's provision of food and water, but there's a lot of uncertainty. You don't know what's going to happen to you on the trip. You don't know what awaits you at the end of your journey. How would you be feeling? I bet you could use a little bit of an encouragement and a little bit of assurance. Notice our gracious God, he sends this dream to Jacob. And in this dream, Jacob sees a ladder, or better understood, could also be translated, staircase. He sees a staircase, and it stretches from earth up to heaven, with angels moving up and down on it. And who's standing at the top of this staircase? Yahweh himself. And notice how God introduces himself to Jacob. He says, I am Yahweh, the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac. And then notice what God affirms to Jacob in verses 13 to 17. It says, I will give you the land of Canaan. I will give you uncountable descendants. Your descendants will spread widely from here. And actually, as I said, Bethel is kind of in the middle of Palestine. So when he says, you're going to go north, west, east, and south, that would have been everywhere around Bethel. So every direction from there, his seed is going to spread out. It says, in you and in your seed, all the nations will be blessed. I will bless you. I will protect you wherever you go. I will bring you back to Canaan, and I will keep my promises to you. Now, what do all these promises remind you of? Someone say yes. This is this. Was somebody? Thought I heard somebody. One more time. That's right. It's the same things that God had promised Abraham. Multiplied seed, possession of the land, promise of blessing, and that one special promise in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And what are the conditions for these promises? None, right? No. And notice Jacob's reaction upon waking. He says, Yahweh is in this place. This must be God's house and the gateway to heaven. And he sets up this pillar to commemorate the place. He names the place Bethel, which means house of God, Bethel. And he makes a vow. He says, if God takes care of me, then Yahweh will be my God. In fact, notice what he further intends to do. He says, I'll make this pillar God's house. And a tenth of everything I have, I will give to God. Now let's take a step back and interpret a little bit. Why are the angels going up and down on this staircase? Why would they be doing that? I mean, it's not like that. It's just really fun to go up and down or something like that. What would they be doing? Uh, I think I see a hand way in the back. Is that you, Roy? Yeah, so I think you're right to point out, Roy. Angels, and that, that term just means messenger. And so if they're moving up and down, then there must be sending out messages or i think we could even say more broadly messenger also has the idea of servant they're doing whatever god's asked them to do going from heaven to earth doing what god wants to accomplish and then also returning to heaven to see what god wants them to do next and certainly as you pointed out roy that involves jacob these angels they're accomplishing god's will including with what takes what's taking place with jacob so then, what, what is God showing to Jacob? What is God emphasizing to Jacob by giving him this vision of this heavenly staircase? 
all these angels are at work. They doing things that involve Jacob. What's God emphasizing to Jacob? Uh, I think uh, the sound was cut off. Can you say that again? That's right. God emphasizes to Jacob that he is taking care of him. Or I think we can also say that God is at work. God is aware of what Jacob is dealing with. God is aware of Jacob's situation. And God himself is intimately intimately involved. His angels are going back and forth. And he's overseeing it all. He's standing at the top of the staircase. And would this not have been a comfort to Jacob? God says, I see. I'm at work. I'm involved. Don't be afraid, Jacob. And of course, this is right along with all the promises that he gives to Jacob. And this would be an encouragement to Jacob to rely on God, to trust in God. Now, where do we see this concept of angels ascending and descending? Somewhere else in the Bible, even in the New Testament. Where else do we see? Well, in John 151, it says this, Jesus speaking, uh, speaking to Nathaniel. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So Jesus alludes to this passage himself and he declares or he, he alludes to this section of Genesis, and he declares, what, you, what Jacob saw, you're going to see on me, on the Son of Man. Now, what's Jesus saying? If Jacob's staircase in the Old Testament was a revelation to Jacob and Israel that God was at work, that God was involved, he was aware, and he was bringing to pass his promises, then what is Jesus declaring about himself? in the New Testament by comparing himself to that heavenly staircase. I think, I think there's something to that. There's, uh, I've got Jesus making a way, that, though that is a little bit specific. Staircase is a, a, uh, a way for moving between heaven and earth, and Jesus certainly would be the mediator. But even more broadly, if the staircase in the Old Testament meant that God was involved, he was aware, and that's at work, he's bringing to pass his promises, and certainly the same thing would be true of the Son of Man. And the promises that he was bringing to pass in his own life, in Jesus' life, they involved, just as you said, Rob, making a way for man to be reconciled to God. So Jesus was declaring, I am going to be the focus of God bringing about his promises to man. In me, you're going to see God's promises coming to pass. You're going to see just how intimately involved God is and how at work he is. Because I am God and I'm here. So we can see a similar message being declared in both situations, but even more intense in Jesus's own life. Now, notice, going back here to Genesis, these promises that God gives to Jacob and this staircase, it's all emphasizing what God is doing and what God will do. But then Jacob says, here's what I'm going to do, God. Jacob offers a vow to God. Well, how are we to understand this vow? Is this a sign of faith? or Is this a sign of lack of faith and self-reliance? You know, at first, when I didn't know this passage super well, I was kind of like, you know, Jacob is being kind of mercenary, kind of martyring, or kind of bartering with God. But the more I think about it, I'm actually inclined to view this vow positively. 
One of the reasons is that God's going to mention this vow again. In Genesis 31, 13, he's going to talk to Jacob. And he's going to say, hey, remember that vow you made to me? Well, I want you to keep that vow. And I'm going to keep what I promised to you. And also, many other times in the Old Testament, we see people offering vows to God. And it's not a bad thing. It's a sign of devotion. It's to be commended. You can think of Hannah's vow to God and others. But <laughs> Jacob does not seem to fully understand what God's up to here. I mean, is Bethel really the house of God and the gateway to heaven? No. And does God need a house? No. Does God need a tithe from Jacob? No. In fact, I'm not even sure how that would work. I mean, there's no priesthood, there's no theocracy at this point. So how would Jacob even give that tithe to God? Not quite sure. But I am reminded, maybe you are too, of David's desire to build a house for God. This comes much later, but David says, why should I dwell in a permanent house? And God still dwells in a tent. I want to build a house for God. And when God communicates to David about this, he commends David for his desire, but he also stresses to David that God does not need anything. Don't need a house. I don't really need anything. I'm God. And in fact, God says to David, rather than you build me a house, I'm going to build you a house. So again, it's all about what God's going to do. Here, God is telling Jacob everything he's going to do for Jacob. It seems like Jacob wants to pay God back somehow. And again, there's something commendable about that. But Jacob's missing the point a little. This vision is not about, Jacob, what you can do for God. But this is about what God is graciously doing for you. The point is for Jacob to trust God and receive those gifts in humble gratitude. And there's something there for us also, isn't there? Think for yourself. Do you need to be reminded that in the midst of your difficult circumstances, where nothing seems to be changing, that God actually, just as he was with Jacob, and just really as he was in the life of Jesus himself, God is actively and intimately involved. He's at work, even in your life and even in your difficult situation. And he's keeping his promises and bringing them to pass. It's happening. It's like you can't see it, but if God were to pull back the veil on the spiritual world, you'd see those angels going back and forth. Do you realize that that's true about your life? And do you also need to be reminded that God is primarily concerned that you receive his gifts? Not that you somehow give something to him. By the way, uh, Greg, Caleb, how are we doing on sound? I, I noticed there's maybe a little bit of a feedback issue. Is that okay? Okay. Okay. Well, we'll do the best we can. Well, God's made all these wonderful affirmations of promises, but let's see whether God keeps these promises to Jacob. So we're going to read on now. Go to Genesis 29. Genesis 29, verses 1 to 14. Let's see what happens. It says, Then Jacob went on his journey, and he came to the land of the sons of the east. He looked and saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep were lying there beside it. For from that well they watered the flocks. Now the stone on the mouth of the well was large. When all the flocks were gathered there, they would then rolled the stone from the mouth of the well and watered the sheep. Put the stone back in its place on the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where are you from? And they said, We are from Haran. He said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, We know him. And he said to them, Is it well with him? And they said, It is well. And here is Rachel, his daughter, coming with the sheep. He said, Behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered. Water the sheep and go pasture them. But they said, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered. And they roll a stone from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. When Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob went up and rolled the stone from the mouth of the well and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. And Jacob kissed Rachel, 
lifted his voice and wept. Dick told Rachel that he was a relative of her father and that he was Rebecca's son. And so she ran and told her father. So when Laban heard the news of Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Then he related to Laban all these things. Laban said to him, surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. You might notice there's a lot of similarities here to another trip that happened in the past to this same area. Remember, Abraham's servant also came to Padnaram or to Haran and even to the house where Laban was. Notice the number of the similarities that we see here. We see God leading directly to the right family and the right house. Just lo and behold, he happens to come to this well and meet someone from the house of Laban. And that person is able to get him to Laban's house. So God brings him right to the place. And notice also that he encounters a woman at the well, a woman from the household. Just like Abraham's servant encountered Rebecca, Jacob encounters Rachel. What do you know? Perfect timing. This woman, just like as before, she runs to tell the household. The patriarch comes, glad to receive uh, the person, Abraham's servant before, but now Jacob, right into the house of the patriarch. Do notice the differences also. This time, no gifts, no servants, no entourage. And this time, also, notice, the woman doesn't water the man's animals. It's the man that waters the woman's animals. And rather than the woman's strength, energy, character being put on display, we see Jacob's strength and character being put on display. Because did you notice, it says that Jacob himself rolled the stone off of the well. We don't know exactly how big that stone was, but verse 2 says, the stone was large. And verse 3 indicates that normally a plurality of persons move this stone. But Jacob sees Rachel, sees her flocks. He goes and moves the boulder all by himself so that he can water her animals. Jacob may be in his 70s, but he's no old man. He's in the prime of life, and he's clearly strong. Now, do you know, this woman he meets, Rachel, is his kin. They are related. In fact, they're somewhat intimately related. Because if Rachel is Rebecca's daughter, then Rachel... Okay, sure. Okay, sure. Okay, I've reconnected, Greg. I don't hear any sound now, though. Okay. I'm getting the message that you guys can hear me, and we'll just continue that way uh, with audio going one way. Sorry if it was uh, difficult to understand before. It seems like it must have been if we if we needed to uh, adjust and restart. But um, all right, let's pick up where we were. So here we are back in. Get my PowerPoint back up. So we're making observations here on Genesis 29, and we do need to note that Jacob and Rebecca are Jacob and Rachel rather are related. If Rachel is Rebecca's brother's daughter, then that means Rachel and Jacob are 
cousins. First cousins. But remember, this is part of the point. Jacob is sent to Haran to find a wife from among Abraham's kin, from that special clan from which Abraham had left and which he had obtained a wife for Isaac. This was considered a good thing at that time. Now, Jacob has successfully traveled all the miles. He's gone 500 plus miles. He's arrived safe and sound into the house of Laban. And so we do see God keeping his promises to Jacob. God said, I'll protect you. I'll keep you. Trust me. And we see it coming to pass. God is faithful. And now it's time to take a wife and head back, right? Well, there's a problem. Because what does Jacob have to offer as a compensating bride price for the bride? Well, he doesn't have anything. Remember, because he only came with the basics. You can't do what Abraham's servant did. Give all those treasures to uh, Bethuel and to Laban so that Rebekah could be obtained. Jacob doesn't have any bride price. So no bride price means no bride, and no bride means you can't return to Canaan. So what to do? Well, Jacob's got a solution. But as he pursues this solution, circumstances are going to take a pretty surprising turn. And this is what we're going to read next in verses 15 to 30. So look at Genesis 29, 15 to 30. All right, so verse 15. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my relative, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah. The name of the younger was Rachel. And Leah's eyes were weak. But Rachel was beautiful of form and face. Now Jacob loved Rachel. So he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than give her to another man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of his love for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife, for my time is completed, that I may go into her. Laban gathered all the men of the place and made a feast. On the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to him, and Jacob went into her. Laban also gave his maid Zilpah to his daughter Leah as a maid. So it came about in the morning that, behold, it was Leah. And he said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Was it not for Rachel that I served with you? Why then have you deceived me? But Laban said, it is not the practice of our place to marry off the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also for the service which you shall serve me for another seven years. Jacob did so. He completed her week, and he gave him his daughter Rachel as his wife. Laban also gave his maid Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as her maid. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and indeed he loved Rachel more than Leah. And he served with Laban for another seven years. Hmm. So, what is Jacob's solution to the bride price issue? He offers to work for Laban. I'll work seven years for Rachel. I don't have anything to give you except my labor, but I'll work for you for seven years. Does that work, Laban? Laban says, all right, we'll do that. And why Rachel? Well, Jacob loves Rachel. And in comparison to her sister, Rachel's beautiful. Leah, well, she has weak eyes. What does that mean, that weak eyes? It's not totally clear. Probably does not mean that she has sight problems or that she was blind probably means that her eyes were not considered particularly beautiful. It may be that her eyes were pale, uh, a light color, which would have con been considered perhaps a blemish at that time. Having the dark, more sparkly eyes would have been considered more attractive. They were really into eyes back then as in terms of what really makes a person beautiful. And Leah seemed to be lacking in that area in, in whatever way. Didn't mean that she was unattractive, just that her eyes were considered a drawback. But Rachel, on the other hand, she did not lack in any area of beauty. So Jacob contracts with Laban to work for Rachel. And Jacob worked seven whole years. Seven years. I mean, where were you seven years ago? But this seemed like such a short time to Jacob because of his love for Rachel. And, ah, isn't that romantic? 
you know, it's funny when I look for the different pictures to use for Sunday school and I, I type in the verses and I look for this passage and I see all these like romantic little displays. It's like, oh yeah, Jacob worked seven years for Rachel and they seem like, it seems like nothing. Isn't that romantic? You know, hard so they have like a little silhouette of a couple standing together. Okay, yeah, that is a little romantic, but this is not going to be a storybook romance. I don't know if you want to go to Genesis 29 for inspiration about your romantic life. Because when Jacob's time is up, and they have the wedding feast, and the honeymoon night, Jacob discovers in the morning that he's just slept with Leah, and not Rachel. They say, wait a second, how could that have happened? I mean, Jacob, seriously, you didn't notice that you had the wrong bride? Well, let's be a little gracious, Jacob. First of all, who would have expected this kind of deception? I mean, you just don't do this to people. You don't just switch the bride last minute. There would have been no reason for Jacob to be double-checking. Second, it would have been dark at the end of the feast day. And third, Leah was probably veiled for the whole celebration, at least for the first day. So really what happened was that a parent used surprise and another person's lack of ability to see properly to make one sibling pretend to be another sibling in order to steal a blessing. Wait a second. What does that remind you of? Exactly what Rebecca and Jacob did to Isaac. They took advantage of his inability to see and they surprised him. So here we see Jacob being deceived in a way that was very similar to how he had deceived Isaac. Now, this certainly was a very scummy move on Laban's part. Jacob is understandably angry. I mean, Laban, why would you do this? Notice Laban's explanation when confronted. He says, it's not our custom. Sorry, it's not our custom to give the younger daughter away before the older. I mean, that's why I had to give you Leah. I mean, it's the custom. And then he makes an offer. He says, why don't you finish the wedding celebration for, for Leah, finish out the week, and then I'll let you marry Rachel at the end of the week. After that, though, you'll have to serve me another seven years. Jacob consents to this proposal. At the end of the week, he marries Rachel too. And that means now he has two wives, but he has to work another seven years for his second one. Now notice Laban also gives a maid to each of his daughters as they get married. He gives Zilpah to Leah and gives Bilhah to Rachel. These maids, they would have been female slaves, just like Hagar was to Sarah. But then notice verse 30, somewhat portentous statement. It says, indeed, Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. Again, doesn't this remind you of something we've seen recently? favoritism within a family. Isaac and Rebecca favored different children, and now we have a man favoring one wife over the other. Is this going to lead to family harmony? Of course it will not. All right, now that we've made these observations, let's ask some questions again, some interpretation questions. Why did he do it? Why did Laban give Leah and not Rachel to Jacob? I mean, nobody benefits from this. Leah, she's not wanted. How's she going to benefit from this relationship? Jacob's going to be annoyed, didn't get the right wife. Rachel, her expectations were dashed. The only one who seems to come out well from this is Laban. Why did he do it? Certainly this custom explanation, oh, it's not our custom. That is a flimsy excuse. Laban was up to something else. Maybe that Laban was trying to get rid of a less eligible daughter. Get Leah married away. Ah, I won't have to provide for her anymore. She'll be someone else's problem. But I think there's something more. Jacob, I'm sorry, Laban tips his hand when he makes his proposal. In verse 27, he says, you're going to have to serve me another seven years if you want Rachel. Because you see, Laban loves having Jacob work for him. He's going to say later on, hey, I noticed that when you're working for me, I'm blessed by God. Laban wants Jacob to keep working for him. These seven years have been good, but he's wondering how he can get that to happen. I mean, if he gets Rachel, he's just going to leave. Ah, I know, Laban says. I'll switch my daughters. He'll be stuck with Leah and forced, if he wants to obtain, Laban, or obtain Rachel, to work seven more years for me. 
really, this is Laban sacrificing Jacob's happiness and his daughter's own happiness in order to satisfy his own greed. It's poignant that in Genesis 31:15, when Jacob is leaving, running away from Laban's household, and tells his wives about it, they both say, hey, our father sold us. They say that they sold, they've been sold to Jacob so that Laban could consume the purchase price. That is Jacob's labor and what he's able to get from Jacob's work. So this was, this was an evil move from Laban. But we also have to ask, what about accepting this proposal? Was it evil? Was it wrong for Jacob to accept Laban's deal and take Rachel as a second wife? Well, what we know from Scripture is, yes, it was. It was wrong. Because, let's face it, even though Leah was not the one that Jacob wanted, God has made his design for marriage clear from creation. It is one man and one woman till death they part. Genesis 2.24 says for this reason, and this is based on Adam's own union with Eve, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, his wife, singular, and the two shall become one flesh. So God's design has been there from creation. It was one for one. You can't make it polygamous without transgressing God's will and God's design. And you say, well, Jacob didn't have that scripture. He didn't, he couldn't read Genesis 2.24. That's true. But it's not like God left himself with no witness in the world. I mean, he's been talking to people. We don't know how much revelation was out there and what exactly it looked like, but God did have a witness of himself in the world at that time. I mean, and also, if you just think about what marriage is, it should not include polygamy. If marriage is fundamentally the joining of one person with another to becoming one, then you can't, you can't bring a third into that. They can, you can no longer have that complete unity that you would just have from two. So Jacob should have known. Now, it is true that the Mosaic law regulated but did not forbid polygamy. Not like it says in, in the first five books of Moses, thou shalt not have multiple wives. God never said that explicitly. So does that mean that God was okay with polygamy in, with Jacob and with some of the Israelites. We're going to see it again. I mean, King David, righteous man, he's going to have a ton of wives. Solomon's going to have a ton of wives. Other people, other Israelites are going to have more than one wife. Was God making, was he okay with polygamy at that time? I think the way to understand this is the same way we understand divorce as it was practiced in the Old Testament. This was a concession due to man's hardness of heart. This did not reflect God's heart, and it did not reflect his design for marriage. The Mosaic Lodge in Deuteronomy 24, it made, it made, uh, it regulated what would be inappropriate divorces, said Deuteronomy 24. If a man finds some indecency in his wife, which is not specified, and he gives her a divorce, well, then he's got to do it this way. It doesn't say he must divorce her, but it says if he ends up doing that, then there needs to be a certain process. And ultimately, that was God being gracious and protecting protecting women to some extent from unfair divorces. But the polygamy worked the same way. God's regulations in the Mosaic law about polygamy were not a sign that God was, okay, this is fine. No, this is just God working around the hardness of man's heart. He did not approve. He did not condone polygamy. In fact, every time or nearly every time polygamy appears in the Bible in the Old Testament, it's always with problems attached. You look at a family who's polygamous in the scriptures and you see problems. And certainly that's going to be true in the life of Jacob and with his wives. This is because when you go against God's design for marriage, whether polygamy, divorce, or something else, you're going to experience painful consequences as a result. This is the lesson our society at large just doesn't get. They keep trying to redefine marriage or do different things with marriage and then they don't understand why it's so problematic. It's because when you go outside God's design, you're going to experience painful consequences. God made marriage to be a certain way. And he loves marriage. And he wants to see men honor it the way that he designed it to be. So this means, if you're Jacob, and you wake up next to a spouse you didn't choose, because of God's design for marriage, what should you do? 
accept it. Accept it and move on. If Jacob wanted to be righteous, if he wanted to be wise, you could even say, if he wanted to be happy, he should have said, you know what? Laban has done me a terrible wrong. But what he did was still under God's control. After all, didn't God promise me that he would protect me from all evil? That was one of the things God said to him back in Bethel. But God did not protect Jacob from this. So this must not be contrary to God's good plan for Jacob. This was God's will for Jacob. Therefore, if you're Jacob, you had to say, I'll let go of my love for Rachel, and I will commit to love Leah as God's special gift and provision for me. Now, of course, that's easier to say than to do. It would have been difficult for Jacob, but it would have been right, and it would have been the way to blessing. We can see a little mini application from that, can't we? I mean, think about your own spouse. Do you need to make that same kind of affirmation? Instead of thinking about how your spouse isn't exactly what you wanted or how you wish your spouse was more this or more that, you also need to remember that your spouse, even if you got married in a, in a sinful way or in a foolish way, your spouse, the one that you have, is ordained for you by God. Your design, according to God, is that you love and appreciate your spouse. That is the way to wisdom. That is the way to righteousness. That is the way to blessing. Your spouse may not love you back. They may even sin against you when you try to love him or her. But Ephesians 5 is abundantly clear that you honor God. God is pleased when you treat your spouse rightly, even when your spouse doesn't treat you that way in return. It is remarkable, though, and I think many of you can attest to this, it is remarkable how a person responds positively when you commit to love that person and commit to doing what's right and good with that person. But this is not what Jacob chose. But Jacob did not embrace these truths. He decided he would simply add the spouse that he did want to his life. But it didn't really make things better. It resulted in a whole lot of problems. Nevertheless, even this was part of God's plan. God promised to bless Jacob even through Jacob's lack of faith and foolish decisions. The last section of scripture we're going to consider today, we won't actually read, but we'll consider it in summary fashion. Genesis 29 verses 31 to chapter 30 verse 24. This is where we hear about Jacob's wives bearing children. This is where we see the family grow or really grow. What happens? Well, we start to see, as soon as we got these two wives, a sisterly rivalry develop. They're both competing for their husband's love, which, of course, that's what, that's what happens in polygamy. Leah sees that she's unloved, but God grants Leah children for Jacob. She has four. She has Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. And she hopes that having these kids, having these sons, it would win her husband's love for her. After all, this would have been extremely valuable in those days. Remember, having children, especially having sons, that was a wonderful thing for a wife to do. That was to her honor. That showed blessing, or that's what many people understood, to show blessing from God on her. She's got all these sons for Jacob. Surely Jacob will love me. Rachel, her sister, sees this and is like, ah, got to keep up with my sister. And she employs the old Hagar trip, trick. She takes Bilhah, her slave, and she gives Bilhah to Jacob as a concubine, as a slave wife, so that Rachel might obtain children for Jacob through Bilhah. Jacob goes along with this. Bilhah gives birth to two children, Dan and Naphtali. But Leah sees this. She doesn't like this comeback from Rachel. And so she gives her slave, Zilpah, to Jacob as a concubine. Jacob goes along with that too. Zilpah bears two sons, Gad and Asher. And these would be on Leah's behalf. And then there's some more squabbling between the sisters. And then Leah wins the right to, uh, to Jacob again. And she bears two more sons, Issachar and Zebulun. So six sons for Leah from her own body. And then finally, after all that, God opens Rachel's womb. And she gives birth to a son, Joseph. Well, we can definitely see that we are on our way to a multiplied seed. 
And Jacob now has 11 sons. And they'll have another one through Rachel pretty soon, Benjamin. But before he's even returned to Canaan, he's got 11 sons. And that doesn't even count the daughters. The daughters aren't mentioned all the way. He's got 11 sons. This is way more than Abraham or Isaac had. God's promise is coming to plant. To pass. Finally, we're seeing the beginning of a multiplied seed. But oi, look at the way it's come about. Jacob has taken four wives. Two of them are sisters, and two of them are slaves. There's competition for Jacob's love through bearing children. There's jealousy, there's rivalry, there's strife, there's sin. And these problems are just going to continue in the lives of the children. Makes you wonder. What might have happened if Jacob had just accepted Leah and moved on? It's kind of poignant that she's the one who bears the most children. I mean, in that day, she would have been considered quite a catch. Six sons? That's impressive. But again, that's not what happened. And we, we can't play the counterfactuals really too much because God ordained for things to come about a certain way, even though Every person is responsible for his choice. This, by the way, is clear evidence that the Bible is not made up. Because who would choose this? Who would choose this as a nation's history? The literal first family of Israel is messed up. Moses has not sugarcoated the past. He's not turned Israel's history into a glorious fairy tale. No, by God's spirit, he's told us the truth, even the ugly truth. Why? So that Israel, so that we might learn. It might believe. We do see again the principle that we've been seeing the past few weeks, and that is you do not need to sin to accomplish God's will. Jacob, Leah, Rachel, they were not compelled to sin. They justly bear the responsibility and consequences for what they chose to do. God would have brought about his promises. God would have blessed each of them. They didn't need sin. They didn't need to sin. Nevertheless, God mysteriously ordained these choices, these sinful, foolish choices, to bring about exactly what he had promised. This, I tell you, this is, this is beyond our full grasp, but the rivalry between Jacob and Esau, which led to the rivalry between Leah and Rachel, which would one day lead to the rivalry between their children, it would one day bring about that Rachel's son Joseph would go to Egypt and become an amazing source of salvation for the entire family. In fact, the sin of Jacob's family, it was a key part of God moving forward, his, full, his whole plan of redemption that culminates, culminates in the Messiah, that seed that God promised would bless all the nations of the earth. Somehow, in the perfect wisdom, the justice, the goodness of God, God was working out everything in those sinful moments, those sinful moments for his glory and his people's good. And isn't that exactly what Romans 8, 28 and 29 say? That God works all things together for good for those who love him and those who are called according to his purpose? There's an amazing set of truths that are right next to each other, which is if you sin, you forfeit God's blessing. Follow God. Don't turn to sin to bring about his promises. And yet... Whatever God, whatever happens is under the sovereignty of God, is ordained by God, and for his people, he works it out for a good purpose. Now again, as I've been saying, God's faithfulness and sovereignty should not make us nonchalant about sin, but it should encourage us. God is in control. God is bringing his good purposes to pass, just as he brought them to pass in the past. And many of these purposes involve the distant future. So even though we don't see an angelic, care, an angelic staircase in our lives, we can know from the Testament of the Old Testament that God is always about his good work. Even through our trials, even through our struggles with sin, and even the times when we make wrong choices, God is still at work. That's a great comfort. But what has he called us to do? God's sovereignty is to lead us to faith and obedience, not to sin. So, again, we're seeing this truth in the life of Jacob. 
And to drive this home a little bit more, let me just ask you a few questions of application. Nice, we've still got time. For you to think about. First, what trials and sin struggles are you going through in your life? How can you apply the truth that God is always intimately at work, even in those difficult situations? Another question. What regrets do you have in your life? Surely there are things we regret, foolish choices, sins. How can God's sovereign goodness still bring comfort and encouragement to you even about those regrets? Of course, this is not to say that if we didn't have a chance to do something again, like some, some terrible sin in our past, that we wouldn't do it. But we also have to recognize the truth that because God brought those things to pass, because he allowed it to happen, there is a redemptive element to it. There's something, there's some good that God yet brings about, even from our sinful and foolish choices. How can God's sovereign goodness bring comfort to you and encouragement, even with those things that you regret? And then here's one, one more question. Do you recognize just what a generous giver God is to you? When we saw this with Jacob, right? God says, look at all I'm going to do for you. I'm a generous God. How can you apply this truth to your thinking and to the elements of your life? Maybe when it comes to your spouse or your job or any other aspect of your life that you sometimes might wish were different. God is a generous giver. He says in his scriptures that he does not hold back any good thing from those who walk uprightly. Jesus teaches us in the New Testament that God is a father who is so glad to give good things to his children. I mean, even evil fathers on earth, when their kid needs something, they don't say, I'm not going to give that to you, at least most of them. God says, how much more me? So how can you apply that truth to elements of your life that maybe you wouldn't have chosen for yourself or that you might wish were different? How can you recognize actually God is being generous and loving and giving this to me? How can I respond appropriately to that? Some questions for you to think about. Well, I'm sorry about the sound issues today. Lord willing, we'll get some of those things worked out for next week. If you have questions about today's lesson, please email me. I would love to try and deal with those questions as best I can. Next week, we're going to see more about how God keeps these promises to Jacob. We're going to see Jacob return safely to Canaan. And as we do, we have more to learn about God's faithful goodness and his sovereignty, which should lead us to faith and obedience. I look forward to talking about that with you next time. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, we know that we are to be instructed. We are to be changed by your word. And the life of Jacob is a wonderful reminder in many ways about your sovereignty and what is the right way, the wise way, the blessed way to live. God, as we've said in the past, Jacob is, a, is someone who he does rely on his own wisdom so often. He's always clutching, reaching, even trying to trick in order to get what he needs. But you reminded him, I'm the one at work. I'm the one giving you all that you need. Trust me. And Lord, we know that that truth is true for us too. God, you do all things well. We do have some difficult things in our lives, God, things that you've brought in by your faithful sovereignty. And some of them, God, we know we're responsible for. Well, the reason we're dealing with those difficulties is because we chose sin. We chose a foolish way. We chose not to listen to your word or pay attention to your word. And yet, God, even in those things, you are gracious. You're teaching us through that. You're teaching others. You're helping us to be able to sympathize with others and being able to instruct others. And yet, God, these things are painful. We thank you, God, for your comfort that just as you're with Jacob, you are with us. And you're with us in an even greater way. You dwell in us. Your spirit is in us. Your power is with us. And you tell us that we have all wisdom in Christ. 
So God, in those, as we continue on in those difficult situations, I, I pray, God, that we would be rejoicing in you, rejoicing in that your good purposes still will come to pass, and that you'll provide. You'll provide for us in our needs, even in our difficulties. And you will display your glory, that wonderful glory at the end. Lord God, some of your purposes will not even be realized in our lives. We won't see the end of what you are doing, but one day we will. One day you'll unveil that that grand tapestry of your will and we'll see, oh, that's what God was doing. That was what God was doing even in that difficult time. Look how he even used what was my foolish choice to bring about a grand purpose. Lord, we praise you for that. And yet, God, we don't, we don't want to experience the pain of doing sin and, and doing those foolish choices. So help us to walk in your wisdom. Help us to trust in your way. I pray that you bless the people at Calvary today and anyone who might be listening who might be elsewhere. And I pray that you bless them and I pray that they'd walk more faithfully with you. In Jesus' name, amen.